0: Well, this morning, our Sunday service, we've come to the fourth and final session of our church's annual retreat. And by now, for those of you who are here with us in Sacramento, our retreat preacher is no stranger to you for the sake of those joining from home on the live stream. Our speaker this morning and our speaker uh, from uh, this past Friday on uh, is Pastor Alton Toe, who is a pastor of Berean Mission Church in Millbrae, California, which meets again just down the road from where we meet in Burlingame. They uh, meet at uh, Mills High School. He is a fellow graduate of the Master Seminary and uh, currently resides in San Francisco uh, with his wife, Carissa, and his son, Miles. We've been blessed this weekend, and if you're joining us this morning, you will assuredly uh, be blessed as Pastor Alton brings us the word yet again. Let's welcome him to the pulpit.
1: Well, good morning to those of you who are here and those of you who are joining us via live stream from home. Uh, It is uh, hard to believe that this is our last session together, and these weekends often go by so quickly. And I just want to thank uh, this church family just for your hospitality, uh, just for the conversations I was able to have, the fellowship that I was able to share, uh, just the meals uh, that I was able to have with you. and, and. Opportunity to preach God's word to you this weekend. Uh, I wish that I was able just to, to be more available to be able to meet and talk with uh, the rest of you. Uh, but Lord willing that we'll have more opportunities uh, because, you know, we're really close by each other in the bay. And so, uh, as well, I just want to thank um, again Pastor Roger for having me be a part of this retreat. And though the opportunities to be able to fellowship with you are few and far between, uh, it is always a sweet time, and I hope you know of my deep affections for you, for your family, and so I'm thankful for our friendship and the partnership that we continue to have in the gospel. And so thank you again just for this weekend. I, I've been truly blessed and uh, yeah, Lord willing that we'll have more opportunities to fellowship down the road. Uh, well, for our, our time together, I want to invite for you to take God's word and turn with me to the letter of James, and we've been in this book for this weekend, and we come this morning to chapter 5, and for our time together, we'll be looking at verses 7 through 11 of James 5, and as always, I want to read our text for us as we begin, and this is God's holy and inerrant word. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9, do not grumble against each other, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Amen. In the August 2012 edition of the New York Times, I came across this story that some time ago, uh, executives at a Houston airport, they faced a troubling customer relations issue. Passengers were submitting an inordinate number of complaints about the long waits at the baggage claim. In response, the executives increased the number of baggage handlers working that shift, The plan worked, and the average wait time fell from eight minutes uh, down to about five, well within industry benchmarks. And yet, inexplicably, uh, the complaints persisted. And puzzled, the airport executives undertook a more careful on-site analysis. They found that it took passengers a minute to walk from their arrival gates to the baggage claim, and seven more minutes to get their bags. So roughly 88% of their time, in other words, was spent standing around waiting for their bags. And so the airport decided on a new approach. Instead of reducing wait times, it moved the arrival gates away from the main terminal and routed bags to the outermost carousel. Passengers had now, they had to walk six times longer to get their bags. And so what happened? What was the outcome? Complaints dropped to near 0%. The story illustrates this well-known fact that waiting is hard. That human beings are simply impatient people, so much so that we would identify with those in this story, that we would rather walk 10 times longer to retrieve our luggage than to stand by the carousel for any length of time to wait for our bags to come to us. This characteristic of patience is a struggle for all of us. And a part of the reason why is because we live in an instant world. If you want to purchase something and you don't want to wait for it, at the press of a button, you can go online, purchase it, and you have it shipped to your front door sometimes the same day. Not only that, you don't even have to wait to really afford it. If you don't have the money, right? just bust out the credit card. There you go, instant plastic money. And so you're able to obtain something instantly that you would otherwise have to wait for. Back in the day, we used to mail things. Uh, We would write letters with pens on dead trees and send them to each other. It would sometimes take months for a letter to make its way to the recipient, and then you would have to wait in turn for a reply for just as long. But things like the Pony Express and the United States Postal Service, they sped up the delivery process dramatically in America. And then someone invented email. And just like that, speed of light, delivery. Today, you can instantaneously call, text, message, email, tweet, Snapchat, DM to communicate with anyone, anywhere, anytime. We live in a world where technology has eliminated the need to wait for anything, whether it's information, a ride, a date, a table at a restaurant, food, groceries, clothing, supplies. We live in an era of bullet trains and Netflix and Wikipedia. We have fast food, fast cars, fast service. We live in a world of instant gratification. It's getting what you want, where you want, and when you want it, and it being now. And the inevitable result of this is that we've become less patient people. Innately, we hate waiting. We want to Avoid waiting at all costs. And this aversion to waiting is perpetuated by a culture where we're so used to wanting things and then getting them right away. Instant gratification is the opposite of what we've been taught and what we're to practice. Delayed gratification. Or in other words, patience. This is the exhortation that James gives to the early church here in our passage. So many of us know what it is and what it means to struggle with patience. This morning, we're going to talk about what it means to live in patience, not just in the context of the little elements of life, things like long lines and traffic and difficult people, but even in the context of deep suffering, which is what James was primarily addressing here for these first century believers. See, for these believers, the issue was not instant gratification for something they wanted, but for something they were already experiencing, that they had already been enduring difficulty, trials, adversity, all of which we can relate to. And it's in this context that James, he calls for believers to be patient. In fact, patience is a mark of authentic Christian faith, which has been the theme of James throughout this letter and for our retreat this weekend. And so this morning for our last session, we're going to look at this topic of patience. And I want to draw for us just two truths or motivations for how we can cultivate patience in an instant world. First, if you're taking notes, we want to be patient in light of Christ's return. I want to begin by looking at the command to be patient. What are we talking about here? What does it mean? How are we to understand it? Verse 5 tells us this. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Patience is the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. The word in Greek describes a long fuse on a bomb, where we know it's going to burn. But patience is the ability for that fuse to burn longer. It has to do with long suffering that endures affliction and has a certain calm and a willingness, I think, to accept situations that are irritating and painful and that grieves us. And so these Christians that James writes to were suffering. They were persecuted, oppressed. Uh, In the context of this passage, they were being defrauded by wealthy landowners uh, from just the the chapter before. So they were enduring economic hardship and and poverty and starvation, and and they were being taken advantage of. These wealthy landowners were responsible for even the deaths of certain Christian laborers. James addressed the the wicked landowners, and and he warned them of their impending condemnation, beginning in verse 5. But James here, in this, in this passage of verse 7, is addressing now those being oppressed. The apostle says, therefore, as indication, that he's now addressing these believers, whereas he was addressing the wealthy landowners who were, who were persecuting them from before. And it's in this context that, that James tells them, in light of what you're going through, be patient. We know it's wrong, but they're going to get their due. But for you, your responsibility is not to worry about that, but your responsibility is instead to wait. See, he understands the tendency is not to be patient. It isn't to embrace delayed gratification, but rather to to want instant gratification, in this case, of the removal of some difficulty. And I think about for ourselves, we know patience is difficult because Life in a fallen world means we face difficulty on a daily basis. Traffic, misbehaving kids, personalities that rub us the wrong way, parking. But beyond these common nuisances, like these believers, we also know the challenges of patients with deep suffering. It could be chronic pain that you're experiencing that will afflict you for years, if not for the rest of your life. It could be an extended season of singleness for those who are unmarried. It could be the sins of your spouse that profoundly affect you and your marriage and your family. It could be the persecution for your faith. It could be financial struggles and hardship. It could be a difficult person in your family or in your life. And in these times, it's easy to be angry and bitter and complain and to walk away. In other words it's easy to do the exact opposite of being patient. We know this is hard, and James recognizes this. See, notice he he doesn't just leave this command in itself, because he knows how hard this is, and he knows this need for extraordinary grace to respond God's way and not our way, as we're inclined to do. And so what the apostle does is, after issuing this command He points them to the great motivation that we have to be patient. Namely, the coming of the Lord. He says, be patient, dear brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Scripture talks about the two comings of Christ. The first, as you know, was when Christ came to die for our sins and to be raised on the third day over 2,000 years ago. But there's a second coming when Christ comes, not as Savior, but as Judge. The one who will vindicate us and make all things right in this world. James wants believers to be patient in view of the return of Jesus. He wants their response to suffering to be informed by their contemplation of the coming of Christ. Because it's only then can they respond rightly. See, patience has a specific object, a specific hope, a specific confidence, namely the return of Of our Lord. And it's in contemplating that that glorious future that it creates patience in our lives within our present suffering. There are so many stories that have come from the two world wars in our history. And I was reminded specifically of the story of General Douglas MacArthur and the infamous Battle of Bataan in 1942. This battle was fought by the United States and the Philippine Army against Japan during World War II. And the the battle represented the most intense phase of the Japanese invasion of the Philippines during the war. For those who know this historical account, when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, they invariably cut off the naval support for the Philippine Army meaning tens of thousands of troops were left fighting for their lives and without any help in sight. Trying desperately to hold the strategic port of Manila Bay but without any reinforcements or provisions, General MacArthur consolidated his American and Filipino forces into the Bataan Peninsula for one last ill-fated stand. But President Franklin Roosevelt, knowing the American troops would soon be forced to succumb, ordered MacArthur to leave the last stronghold at the island of Corridor. And the order fell heavily on the loyal MacArthur as he grew in affection for both the U.S. and Philippine troops. Reluctantly, MacArthur leaves Bataan for Australia. But with a heavy heart, the general sailed away from what may have been the greatest loss in American history, knowing what the brave men that he left behind would now suffer and endure. And as he left, he made a vow and said, I shall return. It was those words and this promise that he would repeat over and over again during the war. And eventually, what happened, as you know, the Japanese took over the last stronghold in the Philippines. And on April 9th, the Japanese forces... They ended up having tens of thousands of men march 66 miles north over the next several days, known today as a Bataan Death March. If the soldiers faltered at all, and many did, they were often beaten, bayoneted, or even beheaded. Many died. And those who survived were often subject to horrific conditions and treatment by the Japanese And it would be over two years later, on October 20th, 1944, the MacArthur stood once again on Philippine soil after landing safely on the island of Lati. And on that day, he made a radio broadcast in which he declared, People of the Philippines, I have returned. General MacArthur's promise gave hope to many thousands of American POWs and the people of the Philippines. Many POWs endured brutal and unimaginable horror as they awaited for MacArthur's return. But it's been recorded that the promise of his return gave them hope. It inspired perseverance and endurance in the midst of their suffering. James reminds these suffering Christians of the promised return of Christ. The Lord has said that he will return. And the return, not simply of a human general for a physical liberation, but James reminds them of the return of the Lord of glory himself for a liberation from our sin and suffering and Satan. In the same way, if General MacArthur's promised return could sustain soldiers enduring horrific Conditions as POWs, how much more so should the promised return of Christ sustain and strengthen these Christians in the midst of their suffering? See, you cannot understand the call to patience unless you view it from the perspective of eternity. James wants these believers to have hope that their suffering, it has an expiration date that their oppressors will be judged, that their sorrow will be turned to joy because the Savior will return and he will rescue these believers. And so James says, look to the return of Christ. Know that it is certain and then live patiently as a result, even in the midst of the most severe uh, pain and hardship and persecution that you're going through because Christ is coming. In the drive home this point, James, he he gives an example from everyday life in that day. He he appeals to the farmer. He says in verse 7, see the farmer. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. These believers would have been very familiar with the farming imagery in that day. See, in Palestine, the rain came at two different times of year. The early rains, which James speaks of, comes in October, November, after the crop was sown. And the later rains came in March and April. Between these times, the farmer might need to regularly tend the ground and keep the weeds at bay, but he could do nothing at all to accelerate the process of bringing the crops to harvest. All he could do was do his part and wait, and to patiently wait, for the Lord to bring the rain at the right time, in the right amount, in the right place. Rain in which he knew would come. It was a certainty. It was only a matter of when. The farmer becomes an example for these believers who are afflicted. That just as a farmer is dependent on the providence of God and the timing of God for rain. So these Christians are dependent on the timing of God for the return of Christ. And because they're certain of the Lord's return as a farmer is of the rains, we can expect that the Lord will also, that he will be at work and that he will come in his own way in our trials and suffering. And they will be confident Knowing that all will be made right when the Lord comes. And so James exhorts these believers to be patient in light of Christ's return. Second, he also tells them to be patient in light of Christ's reward. James says this in verse 9: Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged, behold the judge is standing at the door. James, what he does is he issues an admonishment in the midst of this encouragement. In verse 9, he, he addresses what is really the antithesis of patience, namely grumbling or complaining. James is saying that in your suffering, you, you must not complain. Now, again, remember who James is addressing. And understanding who he's addressing, a part of me is like, well, if there's anyone who could complain and get a pass, right, it'd be these believers. James is writing to those who are suffering hardship, who have been displaced who are enduring persecution and a threat upon their lives. In that instance, if someone was complaining, I think we'd understand that your life is pretty bad. Your situation seems severe. You have hardship that we cannot understand in our day and context. But notice, James offers no such concession. The reason why is because of the seriousness of complaining. I think this is important for us to note because... Instead of being patient, we we do all have a tendency to complain instead. And yet we don't see it really as a sin that it truly is. And instead, we, we tend to see it as a sort of respectable sin that we just somehow really embrace and accept that the complaining is something that we accept as a part of our normal, everyday life and conversations, that it's just a regular occurrence for some of us, and some of you guys have a reputation of just being the biggest complainer, and, and we just laugh about it, you know, because you know it's true, and, but I, I think sometimes our response to it shows that we don't really understand the seriousness of it, because why it's serious is because complaining is ultimately directed towards God. So you realize that there is no neutral complaining. Uh, you think about it, if, if I was at home and my wife put in the time and energy and love in providing this home-cooked meal for me and my son and our family, and at the dinner table, I take my first bite and I say, ugh, this food is gross. And then my wife would be like, excuse me? And I'm like, no, 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 hun." So I'm just saying that, this home cooked meal is just really gross. I'm not saying anything about you, right? Like, obviously, that, that won't fly with her, right? In the same way that all complaining ultimately reaches its end at God because God is sovereign. He is the one who is the author, provider of life. You remember in Exodus 16, Israel is, is in the wilderness and they begin to complain about their hunger, and it is said, that they in their hunger they they complained and grumbled against Moses and Aaron specifically. And nevertheless, God in his grace provides some manna and meat and they eat. But do you remember what Moses said to them afterwards? He says to the people, The Lord has heard your grumbling against not me, him. Your grumbling, he says, is not against us, but against the Lord. This is the gravity to our complaining, that complaining always finds its end to God. You think about areas of life that you might be tempted to complain in. Is it a coworker? Is it your kids? Is it some suffering that you're going through? Is it relationships in your life? Do you realize that ultimately complaining ends with God, and you're saying to God, why is my life and my situation and my circumstances this way. So, how does James address this? Once again, he turns our attention to the return of Christ, but specifically to his reward. He says in verse 10 as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord. Behold, you consider those blessed who remain steadfast, and then you have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate. And merciful. See, in our waiting, especially in times of difficulty, realize that there is a reward or blessing that James speaks of here. And James, he illustrates this in the familiar story of Job. If you remember, uh, there's this scene uh, in the story of Job that takes place in heaven where the Lord and Satan are having an exchange. And the Lord said, have you seen my servant Job? There's none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears the Lord and turns away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord and says, well, Job, he only fears you because you bless him with so much. You take it all away and he'll curse you. And so God says, okay, you want to see? Do what you want with Job. Just don't touch him. And so God, in his permissive will, He allows for Satan to come after Job, but only within the parameters that God sovereignly sets. And so you know the story. So Satan goes and he takes everything away that Job has with the exception of his life. There's a sequence of devastating events after another. A servant comes rushing in and says, Job, your oxen, your donkeys, and those servants that were taking care of them have been killed. And right when he's done, Another comes in, your sheep, and and those servants have been killed. And then another comes in and says, your camels, and those servants have been killed. And then finally, the, the ultimate blow, then another servant comes in and says, your children, Job, have all died. His possessions, his livestock, his wealth, his children, and eventually his health are all taken away just like that. And we sometimes hear this from a a sort of detached way. Understand, this was not just a story. This is not just a Sunday school sort of lesson that we just tell our kids. This was a historical account and situation. This really happened in the life of this man. And it'd be to those circumstances that Job responds with those famous words. Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, here's the thing. The story doesn't end there. A lot of times, people, they just want to leave off on this note of Job's faith, but there's like a good 40 chapters left in this book, primarily dealing with how Job really struggled with his faith. Job struggled with God, but he didn't deny God. He's trying to figure out what's going on. Why is it like this, God? Why am I going through this? What have I done? See, there were moments of great struggle, but he didn't turn his back on the Lord. And and what he did was he brought his concerns to him. And I think Job is really given as an example to demonstrate how great that God's grace and patience is with our struggle. Job did wait. But you know how he waited? He waited in a messy way. He he wasn't perfect. He, He had highs and lows. He's often like us. And we are like him. And the takeaway is this. What James tells us in verse 11 is that he was blessed in the steadfastness of faith that he had. Or in other words, he was blessed in his patience. Don't misunderstand, he he wasn't blessed because of his patience. James is telling us he was blessed in it. See, the, the blessing isn't what you might think. Because for those of us who know the story of Job, we think, okay, we think about the story that in the end, God ended up giving Job back his health, more wealth than he ever had, a family, albeit a new family. And so in the end, God rewards his patience. And so the reward, again, was was, again, what he received after his patience. But what was the blessing? What was truly the blessing? Job 42 tells us this. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What's going on here? What what is the blessing of steadfastness and patience? It's the the blessedness of a changed life. It's It's a blessing of transformation. It's a blessing that we see here of what Job was and to what he became in this Process and this dialogue that he had with the Lord. See, that's what God is after. The, the blessing isn't that Job is getting his stuff back at the end of his trial. No, it's that through this trial, God had reformed Job. This is a new man changed by the grace of a sovereign God. That's the story of Job. A man who is blessed by God because at the end of the story, Job is. A different man, he's changed in the patience and perseverance in the midst of suffering. See, it's there that the Lord meets us in the wait with his grace. Job comes to know God in a way that he couldn't apart from his suffering. And that invariably is the reward. It is the blessing. In waiting, I think there are important truths that, that God wants for his people to know about who he is and about how he works in our lives. And so I wanted just to end by giving two lessons about waiting from this passage and and this account that we've looked at. One, I think what we see in this account is that God is always on time, even when he appears to be late. The idea of God's timing is something that James alludes to for these believers in the first century. They struggled with God's timing of how long they were suffering. And yet how many here can relate to that? How many of us have had to say to the Lord, why so long? Why don't you end this now? Why don't you do as I've asked? And it goes to show that God will not be moved by need or opportunity, but by the will of God himself. The prophets and Job and these believers, they they have a need. God has an opportunity to meet it, but it wasn't his will for him to act just yet. Understand there is God's will and God's timing at work here. He walks perfectly through both. The Bible time and again teaches us to look at the delays in our lives from a divine perspective rather than from our limited human perspective because God views the passing of time differently than we do. To God who is eternal, our days are numbered, his are not. So often we're in a hurry to see things happen. He is not. For we're told that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. You think about how every culture has a different sense of time. You think about a wedding day, where you have this sort of cross-cultural occasion at times, and so there are scenarios where one party is from a culture where 15 minutes late or 30 minutes late is okay, and the other is from a culture where you're not allowed to be late at all. One side is going to have a problem, the other's cool, right? Imagine they're waiting around on the wedding day for the wedding to start. The bride or groom, they're not there on time. It's 15 minutes after the scheduled start time. One side of the family is nervous and saying, this is not okay, The other side, everybody's just chill, right? Timing is relative. Everyone has a sense of this is the right time, this is okay, this is not. God's sense of timing will always confound ours, no matter what culture you're from. His blessing never seems to come when you want it. His grace doesn't operate according to our schedule. And if you try to impose your understanding of timing on the Lord, you will struggle to feel loved by him. We will be frustrated because we believe God appears to be late when he is actually on time. He doesn't work according to how we think. And God will continue to be God. He will not be hurried. He will not be hurried. His timing is different from ours. Conceptually, I, I think we know this. But practically, waiting is sometimes the hardest thing. And it's particularly hard when we're hurting. Why can't I find work? Why is work so unfulfilling and difficult? Why can't I figure out what I want to do with my life? Why haven't I found the right person? Why aren't things good at home and in our marriage and with our kids? Why are friendships just so difficult and relationships with people so hard? Why do things not seem to be going right? And we ask all these questions, and we want to know why, and then we say that we believe in God's sovereignty. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for our good, but if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we struggle to trust that God is up to something good for our lives. And so often it's because we want to see it now if not now, soon. And God is having us remember his timing is different. But we can trust that God who is eternal is also a God who is sovereign, who is wise, and who is good. And whose motivation in delaying is his love for us. And that's the second lesson that we learn is that God, he delays because he loves us. That's an important lesson. Because I think a lot of times we associate delay with a lack of love from God. But, but God makes it a point to show that his delay is not in spite of his love, but because of it. He loves by delaying. When God's people ask for a trial to be taken away, that, that's not a bad thing. And I'm not saying that it's particularly wrong to ask for that. But the Lord, he, he has in mind something greater and even better for His children. And for these believers, he has something better for them, though they didn't know. See, God, he he challenges our notions of what love is. We all tend to have a definition of love as fulfillment of our immediate happiness. Uh, See, when a child says to a parent, you don't love me, when they don't get something, what they mean is, you have not in that moment fulfilled my immediate happiness. I wanted more ice cream, you didn't give it. I wanted to watch more TV, you didn't let me. I wanted the toy, but you didn't buy it for me, therefore you don't love me. And of course, from a parent's perspective, we know that is totally not true. But this happens with us and God as well. We want that job, we don't get it. We want a spouse, but we remain single. We want to be healthy, but we continue to have chronic pain and we're even enduring an illness. We want a peaceful life, but we get suffering. Therefore, God surely doesn't love us. So oftentimes, when we don't get what we want and how we want it and when we want it, we question the character of God. We question his ways. We question his love. But God, he works with a very different understanding of love. God communicates to us in effect, fact, I love you so deeply. I love you more than you can ever imagine, more than you can possibly know, which is why I'm going to wait. Because waiting is not just about what you get at the end of the wait, but about who you become as you wait. That's important to understand. I love what Paul Tripp, he says here. He says, quote, for the child of God, waiting isn't simply about What I'll receive at the end of my wait. waiting is fundamentally about what I'll become as I wait. God is using the wait to do in me and through me exactly what he's promised. Through the wait, he's changing me. By means of the wait, he's altering the fabric of my thoughts and desires. Through the wait, he's causing me to see and experience new things about him and his kingdom. End quote. That's the reward. That's the blessing. And that is the grace. I want you to think about where you're tested in your patience. I want to say for many of us, we probably have the most difficult things waiting for things that God himself says are actually good things. For instance, God, he says that friendships are good and friends seem to disappoint. They're few and far between in moments of need. God says that marriage is good, it's a picture of the gospel for the world to see, and that A single Christian then ought to prepare themselves to be the godly spouse that God will have for them. Yet countless couples have gone to the altar and they've entered the joys and benefits and sanctifications available in marriage. And why then are some godly people not married? Why must some wait a long time to get married? Why are some even single for the rest of their life? God's word says that salvation is a good thing. Or if, or if the salvation of my children, a loved one, a neighbor, a friend would be a good thing, we ask, why must I wait? And Why are loved ones not responsive to our initiatives, to us preaching the gospel to them? Why can't God just change their heart after praying for years upon years for our unsaved loved ones? The thing I struggled with most is, is God saying in his word that children are a blessing. But if having children is good, then why are some unable to have children? Why do some have to wait so long? Why is it that others have no, no trouble at all and, and others sacrifice their children at the altar of convenience and all the while, we can't even have one Lord? Why does it seem like the Lord is withholding blessing that he says is good for us? And it's here that James tells us The blessing is in the waiting. He loves us so much that he makes us wait because of what he's doing through it. See, the truth is, for all of us, we are people in process. We are unfinished products. We know that we're weak and fragile and sinful people in need of grace. And Jesus could not be the Savior and leave you in the state that you are as believers And so he promises to do what he needs to to make us who he wants us to be. And one of the means for how God accomplishes this is through our waiting in the midst of even affliction. And so in grace, God, he uses hard tools to produce soft hearts. And that's a very good thing. He'll expose idols He'll show you what's really dear to your hearts. What we feel that we cannot live without and what truly rules there. He'll reveal character and where we need to grow. I just want to say, I know it's hard for those of you who are suffering right now to hold on to this as comfort. But I want to tell you that God's grace often does its best and brightest work when things are darkest and most difficult. Even though we endure things that don't seem to be good, there's comfort in knowing that the one in charge of all that happens is good. He is holy, he is righteous, he is wise, he is loving in every way. And he's after the ultimate good for his creation, for us who bear his image. He's moving creation to the moment when he will finally make all things new. And he's gonna make all things new starting with you. Authentic Christian living is to be able to practice patience in our lives with the hope that God will say what he does. That God, that, that he will do what he says, that, that he will fulfill what he, what he says that he will accomplish in our lives and in our world. So let us go forth and let us live out our faith in a way. That brings glory to the Lord and it shows again the genuineness of our faith that He's given to us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for those that are here, that you will cause us to be driven to Christ, where you recognize that we often fall short of your calling in our lives. We know how impatient that we are, and yet, Lord, we we trust in a God who is patient, ever so patient with us. So give us much grace, Lord, as we leave from here, as those who desire just to be faithful to you. Thank you for the promises of your word. We pray that would sustain us, that would give us much hope and great confidence to be the men and women that you desire for us to be. Lord, we thank you for the change that you have already brought about in our lives and that you will continue to do until the return of Christ. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.